you would open your Bibles to the prophet Haggai, chapter 2. Today we'll actually conclude our study in Haggai. So that averages out the length of time it takes to get through a book of the Bible in this church. Two weeks for one and two and a half years for another. So you are all long-suffering. Before I read any of the passages, though, I I do want to uh, note a few things that were not covered uh, in the announcement time. If you are a visitor, you see in your bulletin a little information card if you'd like follow-up, have any questions about the church, um, and would like to discuss those with me or one of the leaders in our church, you can fill that out, drop it in the offering box back there. And also, tonight, we will not have our normal Sunday night service, uh, prayer meeting, fellowship meal, sermon discussion, because it is Father's Day, so spend some time... uh, Kids honoring your father, particularly today, and, uh, and adults uh, spend some time commemorating what God has done and how he's blessed you through your father. So I would like to begin with prayer before we get into the passage. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us on a day like this to uh, celebrate your grace towards us and that everything that we have is from you as our heavenly father. Nothing good we have is of our own, and nothing good that we enjoy um, has not been given to us by you. So we thank you for your abounding grace to us, Uh, even as we are sinners and we deserve nothing but your wrath, you have chosen to make us your children. So thank you for being a good father. I pray as we consider how we might respond to your fatherly love and affection for us by building your house, that it would summon in us strength and summon in us a will and desire to obey. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the ways that any honest observer can look at humans or look at the world and the behavior of humans, and know that we are not like the creatures, is uh, we have such a wide range of emotions. Animals desire things, to be sure, and if you grew up on a a quasi-farm like I did, you know that animals want things, but uh, only humans will move heaven and earth because of longings. Nostalgia, homesickness, regret, sentimentality, and so many more nuanced emotions are not only part of the things that we feel under this heading of longing, but they sway the course of our lives and make us do things. And the response of our hearts when things cannot be as we want them to be, when things cannot be as they once were, When things cannot be the the ideal form that we would strive for is disappointment. To riff on the penetrating insight of Solomon, unmet longings make the heart sick. And as we walk this often lonely road with longing, 
even as we try to obey God's commands, the result is very often disappointment. And we could turn to Genesis 3 and Romans 8 to answer why, but we'll address this very specific concern of Haggai chapter 2. It is very often the case that we, even as God's children, can long for the glory of God, but we can at the same time find ourselves so disappointed in our attempts to seek and find it. If you remember from last week, the people obey. The prophet Haggai is sent to them and he rebukes them saying, hey, you've got all this time to focus on your life and the building up of your house. You've got roofs on your house. Look at my house. It's just a slab. So build my house, God tells the people through the prophet, and they obey. But very quickly, the project to rebuild God's house meets with a more formidable opponent than the king of Persia himself. Disappointment, discouragement, sorrow, and lament. And it culminates to the point of even where they despise God's house. And they despise, in a sense, their own efforts to rebuild it. So we begin with verses 1 through 9, where we see encouragement and exhortation. I'll read verses 1 through 9 for us. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you now see it? It Is is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The prophet begins by asking a question. Who is left among you? And this indicates that there very well may have been some old timers who had actually seen the temple that Solomon built before it was finally destroyed some 66 years ago. Obviously, most of them would not have been old enough to have seen it. But sometimes what your mom and dad tell you and your grandma and grandpa tell you uh, become somewhat larger than life and your mind can play tricks on you and create memories of things that you've never seen. So the legend, as it were, of Solomon's temple loomed large in all of their minds, even if they had not been there to see it themselves. 
We need to understand and remember the significance, the central significance of the temple to the national identity of the Jewish people. It was a bigger deal for them than the White House and the Capitol together. It was a bigger deal than the Alamo for a Texan. Huge. The temple was, in a sense, the epicenter of their religion and their self-awareness as a unique people group. It was their familiar heritage all rolled into one. It was, not to put too fine a point on it, the very soul of the nation, the temple. And even saying it that way is a limited way of describing how big of a deal the temple was to a Jew before the exile. It was the place where Yahweh had set his name. So here they are. They're trying to rebuild it. They're trying to maintain a positive outlook. They're trying to have a repentant attitude after the rebuke of chapter 1. And they just can't. Because look at it. Have you ever been the last one to have a positive attitude on a family vacation? Maybe you dads out there, Father's Day, if you remember back to vacations where you would say as the final one to have a smile on his face, we're going to have a good time. Sometimes it's just impossible to maintain a good attitude when the outward evidences and what's going on say everything to the contrary. Just look at it. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. The glory of days gone by has not given them strength or energy to finish the work. It is discouraging them to the point of not wanting to finish the work at all. And so he says this interesting statement. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And you could translate it this way. It and nothing, are they not the same in your eyes? Don't it, the temple that you started working on, and nothing amount to about the same thing? He is acknowledging the disparity between the real and imagined memories of the glories of the former temple and this paltry excuse for it that they're building. Keep in mind, that acknowledgement is not disputed. It's as if the prophet is saying, Of course it's not as big or as nice or as pretty or as filled with glory as it ought to be. That was not that thought itself, that acknowledgement of reality wasn't the sin. It was that the people let this thought cause them to lose strength and fervor for the work. And he says, sure, it and nothing, they amount to about the same thing. If if we're just comparing outward appearances, if the physical aspects of it mattered most. So how does God encourage them in light of this discouragement leading to a despising of God's house?
Here we are. Tried to mute it to spare you the sound of me drinking tea because I have a sore throat, but then I muted myself. All right. So the main encouragement of this passage is be strong, and it's repeated three times for emphasis, and he names each of the recipients. Now, just to be clear, this is not a command to bulk up, you know, Bodybuilders don't have their life verse right here to be strong. This is a command to the heart, a summons, even a command with the force of creation to be strong. It's a big deal. Building God's house is going to require a lot of strength, so you're going to need it. It also carries the sense, and you run into this phrase throughout the Old Testament, gird up your loins. Uh, in In modern parlance, that would sound something like this. Put your big boy pants on. Get ready. This is a real big task. Be strong for what? Why do we need spiritual strength? Well, he says, work. Not much exposition is needed here, but oh, how much we need to obey. And you might respond, we might respond, well, we don't want to be legalistic. You know, we don't want to think that we work and bring something to the table. We don't want to emphasize the commands of God over the grace of God while this emphasis on work. But the Lord tells them he's going to give them strength. He tells them he's going to enable them to do this so that they can work. And that's how it works in our lives as well. He's going to equip them with the very strength that they need in order to continue the work even in the face of serious challenges. And so he says, I am with you. My spirit remains with you. So he reminds them of the covenant. And the mention of the Exodus is interesting and very powerful. When God led the children of Israel up out of Egypt, where was the temple? When God led them up out of Egypt, Where was the law? The crossing of the Red Sea, the most powerful and amazing demonstration of God's power and His covenant love for His people, didn't need a temple made of stone or even a tent made of goat's skin and wood. All there was in that moment was God, the people, the seafloor, the water, the wind, And the enemies of God being drowned in the catastrophic power of His saving vengeance. It was all there was. God didn't need a temple or a tent in order to be faithful to His people and to do something amazing for them. So He reminds them of His covenant. I will be with you. My spirit is with you. According to that same covenant, that same love that He has for them. And He says, fear not. And that could be a series on its own, that one statement, two words. But the narrow point here is that because God is with them, insofar as they obey God, they need not be afraid because God will give them the ability and resources and power over their enemies and favor with the King in order to do the work. This carries the exact same flavor of Matthew 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. So as we seek the kingdom of God, as you set out to obey God to build his house, he's going to provide everything you need. Fear not. God encourages them. 
Be strong, for I am with you. My spirit will remain with you. Fear not. But he's not done encouraging them. Look at verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord. And up to this point, as we have gone through the prophet Haggai, there has been no explicit reason in the text to take this as anything more than a command to rebuild God's house in general. The temple, the literal temple of God. But now... With these verses, the prophet, God through the prophet, is signaling to the people that these promises simply can't only mean stuff dealing with that physical temple. This this prophecy, this promise, defies the imagination. This is common through the Old Testament. And here we come to a question. This is a serious question. Does God... Overpromise and underdeliver through these imagination-defying promises, or does he underpromise, so to speak, and overdeliver with these promises? Because if this is just speaking about the literal temple, then we would have to say God underdelivered, but it's not. Two points to consider. Do you remember uh, when the, the disciples came to Jesus and they were all impressed with the temple? They said, look, Lord, what great stones and buildings. He says, do you see all these buildings? There will not be left one stone on top of another. And they're all freaked out. And they come to him later saying, well, tell what, what's the sign of the, these things happening? They're confused because maybe a promise like this, that all the nations will be so utterly shaken that all their treasures are going to flow into this. Jesus is unimpressed. It's the actual same temple. I mean, it was so renovated by Herod that it wasn't really the same building, but it's the same foundation. And it was, in a sense, polluted. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit when Jesus shows up and the things he does at the temple to show how he and himself represents the fulfillment of these things. And also, the only place in the New Testament where Haggai is quoted is in Hebrews. And if you'll remember several weeks ago when we were in Hebrews 12, we went over this. Hebrews 12, verse 25, if you want to turn there. Look at how the author of Hebrews understands this promise. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, and here's the quotation, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that are made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This promise 
to so utterly shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and force, in a sense, to ransack all the nations and bring all the treasures of them into this house simply can't fit in the created order as is. And the Hebrews explicitly says that. He encourages the people. This is God encouraging His people by saying that this smaller, less beautiful temple would grow and grow in glory and be so radically transformed by the pouring in of all these treasures of the nations that its latter glory would exceed the first. So what is this business about all the treasures of the earth pouring in? Some translations render it desire. The desire of all nations, that's a bad translation. It has led to some people seeing the desire of all nations coming to this place as a reference to Jesus. And Christ is in this chapter, as we'll see in a little bit, but not here. In the immediate context, they needed stuff to build this house, right? They're they're not wealthy, and they need to go and get things, literal building materials. We know how expensive wood is, but it would have been even more Uh, orders of expense to acquire the right kind of wood to build the house. And so God is saying, don't worry that you don't have the bronze or gold or silver and the the fine woods that once adorned the first temple. I'm going to ransack all the nations of the earth and bring it all in to adorn my house. And because of the author of Hebrews, we know that this final fulfillment will happen at the end of the age, at the end of all time. And it it, it will be something permanent and eternal. It says the removal of things that are shakable, that is the things that are made. So it can't be literal gold. So be thinking about what can these eternal treasures of the nations mean that God is going to so utterly shake and bring into his house. What could that mean? Be thinking about that. Then we come to verse 10. Through 19, it's a, it's a rebuke. It speaks of opposition and blessing. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the, month, of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with the f- touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. We need to make sure we understand the connection of this passage to the rest of the chapter or else it's going to feel like the prophet is changing subjects. He's not. The first thing to note is that Haggai is in a long tradition of God and the prophets using object lessons to make a very important point. You can see that through Jesus' ministry as well. He's not changing the subject. And the simple point of the question and the object lesson is this. It is much easier to transfer defilement than it is to transfer holiness. And let me give you an illustration to explain the illustration because we don't think in categories of the law of Moses and ceremonial uncleanliness and all of that. 
This idea of sanitization or being sanitized is something we're very familiar with over the last year and a half or so. Um, And it's true, there are some things that are so clean, that have such cleansing power, that if you bring them into contact with something, it will make it clean. Uh, It could also kill you, but there are certain substances that do that. But you don't take something that's unclean and make it touch something that's clean, and then all of a sudden the unclean thing becomes clean, right? If you've got a and we have a few medical professionals in here. I use that general term so as not to offend anyone. But uh, you've got things that are used for all sorts of just nasty jobs in the medical field. And you can't then say, oh, here's a clean sheet. We'll throw the dirty things up against the clean sheet. And then they'll all of a sudden become clean. It doesn't work that way. It's harder to transfer cleanliness than it is to transfer uncleanliness. So, and what's the point of that? What, what is the point of this object lesson that he's using? There's only one answer that makes sense. The point of the object lesson is this. Just because you're working on God's house, it doesn't make you or your works clean. Because you don't have the right heart. You have lost zeal and excitement And your commitment to my house has wavered. Therefore, nothing you do is clean. There's there's providence at work at all times, but it's clear when we read a chapter like 1 Corinthians 5 in our scripture reading, we're just reading through the letters of Paul, the epistles of the New Testament. And that happened to be the chapter today, that sexual immorality defiles the church. And the idea here is that a lack of zeal for the things of God also defiles the church. Faithless neglect, even, is the root of all these other kinds of defilement. And the reason it has to mean this, this whole discussion of defilement, is that no other repentance and no other sin is commanded. This is the issue of the text. They've become discouraged, and their, their hands have not been strengthened, and God, God's commanding them to be strong and to re-engage in the work because they've been discouraged, and it's no longer a priority in their lives. And so he's saying, because you've lost that zeal, because you've lost that excitement, everything you do is defiled. doesn't matter that it's for my house. doesn't matter that you're offering sacrifices. It's all unclean. Now we come to verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord." Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is uncomfortably explicit language from the mouth of God through the prophet. He has been behind the disappointing crops. His hand has been directly behind the failure of the grape harvest. His intervention intervention is behind there being scarcely enough olive oil to speak of. 
He struck the crops with everything from a scorching hot wind, that's what blight means, that dried them up to mildew, too much moisture that that made them rot. He did all that in the ten years while God's house was neglected. They built the foundation with Zerubbabel, started the whole project, and then the king opposes them, and it just lied dormant for ten years, no work being done. The Lord saying, I did that. I brought that on you. And he had to bring a prophet into their midst and to connect the dots for them. They weren't seeing that this hardship was due to their neglect of God's house. And he did all of that. So God is equating their economic situation now. So they started reworking on the temple that we saw in chapter 1. And he's saying, nothing's changed. Your crops haven't improved. Your your when you go to get the stuff out of the vat where you've stored it all up, you're finding that there's not as much as you thought there were. Because you are, through lack of zeal and commitment, you're despising my house, and so that's why everything is going so wrong. Their obedience may have begun with zeal, but very shortly thereafter, because of how disappointing the size and glory of the temple was, the excitement fizzle out. And it led them right back to neglect of God's house from the heart. But then he closes it with a promise to bless them, right? This is what it says at the end of verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. Which is why I think we have to take this in connection with the commands to be strong and to work. Otherwise, God is promising blessing without repentance, which he never does. So he's saying, from this day on, if you take up strength, if you put your big boy pants on, if you get to work, you apply yourself with zeal to the rebuilding of my house, I will bless you. That's what he's saying. And no, that's not the prosperity gospel. It's a trustworthy statement. God always ensures that his people will have everything they need to build his house if they would but make it their priority. That's what he's saying. If you don't make the building of my house the priority, I will oppose you. I will make your crops fail, he says. But from this day on, if you obey, if you take up strength, and you work, and you apply yourself to the priority of my house, I will bless you. And then we come to verse 20, these restorative promises. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month to speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and all the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. These are amazing promises. And we are immediately confronted by the reality that they were never fulfilled in Zerubbabel's lifetime. 
At the time of Jesus, the 12 what we call minor prophets were one book, and they were especially important for all the different religious groups leading up to the time of Christ. These were the most recent revelations from the prophets. And so Zerubbabel was dead by the time we get to Jesus, of course, so they, they would have known that these promises had not been fully fulfilled in the person of Zerubbabel. He just passes into obscurity. We don't know much about him after the temple is finished about four or five years from now, from this point. So what is this business about a signet ring? This is why we need guides, people who have studied the Bible all their life and can point us into places. Go to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, beginning in verse 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kohanai, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off. And I give you into the, the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even to, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Jehoiakim is the son of David. And God says, even if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would tear you off and cast you away. In light of the Davidic covenant, that is a startling statement that the heir of the line of David is going to be cast away from the Lord into the hands of his enemies. Remember what I said last week. What makes these guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua, interesting is that they were duly appointed. Zerubbabel is, in fact, the grandson of Jehoiakim. So when we read at the end of Haggai 2, I will have you as a signet ring. It is essentially reversing the curse that came down on the line of David because of sin and idolatry. And more importantly, why does this matter? Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew would have written in full awareness of all of these events. Look at what he underscores. Matthew 1:11 And Josiah, the father of Jehoiakim, same name, same person, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoiakim, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Skip all the way down to 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So what we have at the end of Haggai is a promise, maybe not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's lifetime, and all the Jews would have known that in the intertestamental period, 400 years of waiting. But along comes Jesus in the line of David, in the line of Solomon, in the line of Jehoiakim, who was cast away because of idolatry and sin, And from the line of Zerubbabel, these promises have to be bigger than life. They have eternal significance. Look at verse 22. To overthrow the throne of kingdoms 
to destroy the strength of kingdoms and nations and overthrow chariots and their riders. These are, these are promises that refer to the end of the age, the end of all things, when all kingdoms are subjected to Christ himself. So Zerubbabel joins the long list of people who trusted in God who did not receive what was promised, Hebrews 11, but it points to his greater son. The point here, he's not changing the subject. He's encouraging the people to apply themselves to build God's house. Why? Because a son of David is in charge of the work. And the greatest son of David is in charge of the work today. A few implications of this before we get to application. God's blessing and stunning otherworldly promises seem to flow or follow a commitment of his people to build his house. I would argue the most stunning promise of the Old Testament is the promise to David. And it comes right on the heels of David saying, I want to build God a house. And then this promise, otherworldly and defying the imagination, comes not even after the people take up strength and really apply themselves. He says, be strong, and here's a promise I'm going to give you to really encourage you and carry you over the threshold of discouragement and despair and despising of my house to build it. Secondly, we may rightly consider the coming of Christ in this way as the one who will finally come to finish the work of building God's house. The gospel, I want you to understand, it is certainly a message of you yourself being estranged from God, needing forgiveness to be reconciled to Him, or else you'll face eternal damnation. That is the gospel message. However, there are other ways to think about it. And this is one of the ways. God is building for Himself a house. And He will dwell there forever. And the building blocks of His house are no less than you and I, those who trust in the latter Zerubbabel, who is over the work of this house. You must fall under the lordship of David's greater son to be part of this house that he is building to inhabit forever. To be reconciled to the greater son of David. Because there's only one other option. Outer darkness or part of God's house. That's it. That's what God is doing in the universe. He has chosen to redeem rebels to be building blocks of his house. And that's what Jesus is doing. So, how do we despise God's house? A few points of application I think that's what the people did. They saw that it wasn't impressive. They saw it wasn't as pretty. They saw it wasn't going to be as big. We don't have the bronze, silver, or gold that Solomon had. And they let that discouragement cause them to not commit. I think we despise God's house when we let impressiveness determine our zeal. It's not as nice, organized, clean, or pretty as it should be. It doesn't glorify God as much as it should It's not like the glory days of old. It's not like it used to be. We fall into the same snare and people go after the more impressive. Or we will only commit if it's already beautiful and filled with glory. 
Consider David's zeal for God's house. It was just a bald hill. And he said, there must be a house for my God. To be clear, we should desire that the church would be better. But that desire must not take us away from the work that is needed. Our perspective is often something like this. It's too bad that no one else has done this or that. What we need is zeal and eagerness for God's house from the heart. Parents, have you ever gotten your child to obey but knew that it was not from the heart? And it was begrudging or cringing as they obeyed you. When God tells His people to build His house, He is not pleased with that kind of zeal. Because it's not zeal. We must be driven, not by impressiveness or outward appearances, but because it is God's house. Sometimes we'll read a book, go to a conference, we'll gain a new insight. And for a few days, whatever that subject is about, we have, we have a lot of zeal. It's, it spikes. If you were to make a chart of our zeal, it goes up, and then it just tapers off a few days after. That can't be with God's house. That's what happened to the people. Haggai spoke to them. He confronted them and rebuked them for focusing on their house and not God's house. They started, and then discouragement. When we do that, when we turn our attention to other things and the house of God is neglected, meaning your brothers and sisters, we defile ourselves through neglect. It makes even what we do for the house of God unclean. The second way that we despise God's house, we do not take up strength. Three times, be strong, O Zerubbabel, be strong, O Joshua, be strong, O people. We don't listen. We often do not put our big boy pants on for the task of building God's house. We have a haphazard attitude or a lack of preparation or a lack of taking things seriously. You are building God's house. Heaven and hell, sin and righteousness, joy and despair, the fame and honor of Jesus, or the blaspheming of His name hang in the balance in everything we do. You are building God's house. Don't you think that your emotions, your attitudes, your preparation, your taking of things seriously should make sense in light of that? And I'm not saying we need to be somber and grim all the time. But if the watching world... If, if, if all they had to go off of, off of was your persona and your actions, would they believe that there is such a thing as an eternal hell and everlasting life? Would they believe that there is such a thing as the great gospel of God? They need to be able to sense it, to See it, to smell it, and to hear it in your voice. This is deep, serious, ferocious joy in what God has done. You are building God's house. Be strong. The voice that spans the years is beckoning you, summoning you this very day to gird up your loins and flex the spiritual muscles that God Himself by His Spirit has given you and to build His house. Take the job seriously. There is work to be done. It's not the weekend. The weekend is Saturday, okay? We know how numbers work. This is the first day of the week, not the weekend. It's time to work. 
Number three, third way we despise God's house, the outward and physical matter too much to us. We have our eyes on the wrong house. Churches spend millions and billions of dollars every year building all kinds of things that have nothing to do with and even harm the true house of God. The people who sit in the chairs in front of you and behind you and on either side of you, those who call on the name of the Lord, they together with you are God's house. And to give you a test of excitement, if we were to start a new building project or if someone were to give us a wheelbarrow full of diamonds and we'd converted that to cash and had all the resources that that would give us and we posted all the stuff on social media of building and breaking ground and all that, how much excitement would that generate versus the excitement of God sending us one new family that needs to be loved? Which one is actually building God's house? And how much does your heart respond to one or the other? We don't know the future and we pretend to and we despise the day of small things. That's how God rebukes the people in Zechariah the prophet who ministers at the same time of Haggai. They start the foundation, the people cry, they're, they're sad that it's not going to be as big, as pretty as the, temp, the temple of Solomon. And he says, don't despise the day of small things. God often works in very small things that are despised by the world. Is that not what the apostle himself says? God chose what is despised and weak in the world to shame the strong and the wise. What we show when we think this way on the outward and physical is that we feel that God's house exists to serve us, that it's about our expectations, our preferences, our friends, our comforts, our seats, our ease, our spiritual needs, and not about God's glory. Number four, the fourth way we despise God's house, we don't work to bring in the new building materials. This is a plug for evangelism and missions. The point is this, we don't yet have all the building materials needed to build God's house to the height and majesty that it deserves. I told you a little bit ago to think about what these, what these treasures, the eternal treasures of these other nations could be that God will so ransack the nations and cause to flow into his house. It's people. It's other people. The living stones that make up God's house have not reached full inventory yet. God's, in God's providence, there were not trees big enough or strong enough growing in the land of Israel to build his house. He could have ordained that there would have been such trees and stones, but if you read the account of the building of Solomon's symbol, they had to go to other nations to bring in these treasures to build God's house. That's exactly what you and I have to do. He commands them in chapter 1, go up to the mountain and get stones and trees and bring them in. The glory of God and the adornment of His house must be your motivation when you speak to someone, when you talk to them about the gospel. God's house deserves their presence. That's the point. We've got to go and get what is needed to build his house. So, 
four ways that we despise his house. Here are four ways that we ought, four reasons rather that we ought to delight in God's house. So God says, build my house that I may be glorified in it and take pleasure in it. So how can we share God's own sense of his delight in his house? Number one, consider this. These are thoughts to help you delight in God's house. Number one, the gifts and talents that you have are for God's house. We don't have time to read it. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7. When you become a Christian, it's as if you were hired onto the construction team for God's house and the Holy Spirit pulls up to your door with a truckload of new tools and new equipment and new training manuals for the tools that you have and the new tools that you get so that you will build God's house. All of it. All of your talents, all of your skills, all of the giftings that you have are for God's house. There is nothing that you have, nothing that you've been given by God that is not for the building up of His house. That should alter your thinking about your life and about your perspective on things. Again, you can see that clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. Four through seven. Number two, God is in the midst of you. This is an encouragement to delight in God's house. It does not matter what emotions and feelings you have on a Sunday morning. It does not matter what you feel or sense while the music plays or while the preacher preaches. God is in the midst of you as an indisputable fact by virtue of his covenant with you. You, together, are God's house, even if you don't feel very close to God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, even if you don't feel very spiritual. Through Christ, if you trust in Him as your Lord, and you have placed yourself under the authority of David's greater son in this project, you, in fact, are part of God's house. Your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room are the living stones that make up God's eternal temple, even if they don't seem very impressive to you. Or even if this building or this room or our equipment are not the very best. Do you have that right set of eyes that you're able to see the glory and the majesty of what God is doing in your midst? God is in the midst of you. My spirit will remain with you, he says. Number three, this is a reason to delight in God's house. Divine opposition and blessing are at stake. This is very clear from the text, I think, that neglect and not making the house of God a priority in life, focusing on other things, will elicit God's opposition. And this should not be a discouragement to you. It should not come across as heavy-handed or mean-spirited. I'm not trying to do that. I'm, one, telling you just what, how God speaks to his people. But two, consider this. Focusing on any other thing is like building a sandcastle. It is God's mercy, his kindness, that would drive him to topple that sandcastle and make you build his house. Because it's not going to last. They wanted paneled houses. They focused on the agricultural products and they, they were focusing on that. And all the while, God's house lies neglected. It's not going to last. 
We don't tell stories about so-and-so's house in Jerusalem. But commitment to the work of building God's house brings blessing and equipping. Again, this is not the prosperity gospel. The blessings He may give you in order to build His house may not be what you're looking for. They may not be what you want or the blessings that you think you need. I would really like there to be a Chick-fil-A in walking distance of my house, and I think that would really help me build God's house and do all sorts of things for ministry, but that may not be what He wants. It's a silly example, but we pray for the same kinds of things. Maybe even very things that we need. Health, a certain level of financial stability, and God's answer may be no to those things, but He will bless you, and He will equip you to build his house. Isn't that the very point of the benediction in Hebrews? By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He's going to give you everything you need to build his house. Consider this. You can't take anything with you other than God's house. People often say something like that. Well, you can't take anything with you. It's only partially true. You're not taking any of this stuff with you. But there is something that is going with us, and that is the people and the love and the maturity that you have built into them and through them built into yourself, the house of God. The only thing in all the physical universe that exists right now that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth is the body of Christ in both senses. So why would you spend your time building anything else? It's a sandcastle at best. Everything else is either scaffolding or a distraction. Lastly, as an encouragement to Delight in God's house. God will finish His house. He will do it. To put the finishing touches on His house, it will mean nothing less than the end of the world. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens and the sea and the dry land. When he says, yet once more, it indicates the removal of things that can be shaken, that is, the things that are made, so that the things that are not shaken may remain. To finish God's house, this whole thing's got to be burned. He's going to finish it. Do you understand what lengths God has gone to and will go again to for the sake of his house? Do your actions, do our actions and priorities line up with His? May we be found to be the diligent servant who did not neglect his master's house when he returns. This is how the prophet Malachi says it. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will finish his house because David's greater son is in charge of the work. Just as Zerubbabel was appointed to finish the building of this temple, and it did finish in about four to five years from this time, David's greater son, Zerubbabel's greater son, comes to finish God's house. Look at John chapter 2, and we'll close. This is a passage that should be familiar to you. But I want you to see it in light of Jesus' role as the greater Zerubbabel to come and finish the building of God's house. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overthrew their tables. And those who sold pigeons... And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written to him, zeal for your house will consume me. Is that us? So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Jesus himself is the temple of God. He wasn't coming to merely cleanse the temple. He was shutting that thing down. Because in his body, in both senses, is the very true, eternal temple of God. God will finish his house. Might we join him in his work? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending to us David's greater son, Zerubbabel's greater son, Jesus, to finish the work of building your house that you might dwell with your people forever. May we be found in him And doing the work that he commands to finish the building up of your house. The bringing in of the treasures of all the nations so that your house might be filled with glory. And that you may delight in it. May we see with spiritual eyes. And not be like Samuel who looked on outward appearances. But to look at the heart. In Jesus name. Amen.